welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hi, friends. Welcome to another Roundtable episode. This is where we're going to analyze all the latest games business news. And we're joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navic, and Nildas Gupta, co-founder and co-CEO of First Light Games, and also a new face, Jonathan Anastas. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. You, yeah, could you do a really quick self-intro just so that we can all get to know you a bit better? Happy to do that. So Jonathan Anastas, I'm currently board chairman of Alpha Metaverse, which was previously known as Alpha Esports. I am the prior CMO of One Esports. I was head of global and social at Activision for five years. I was global head of marketing at Atari and have spent a decade plus in this industry that I grew up loving and continue to love. Small CV. (laughs) That's awesome. Happy to have you here, Jonathan. Yeah, and a quick fun fact: your house is built like Mad Men, was it? Donny Don Draper is that is that his name? Yeah, it's a very Mad Men era house. It's built in 1965 by an architect named Donald Park, and it is uh, definitely in the Mad Men era. We've got a sunken bar behind me. It was it was a party house built for people who uh, who lived like Don Draper in the 60s. Nice. Do do you? I do not. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm the father of a (laughs) six-year-old. On uh, less exciting party news, but still exciting business news, this is such a bad transition. Yeah, Aaron, what's this new vertical you have to share with us? Hey, I think this is still exciting. So yeah, I just wanted to to let everyone know that Novic Pro, our premium research platform, we were just launching another vertical. So previously we... Um, targeted free-to-play games and Web3 games. We just added a new financial markets vertical. And what this means is that every week we produce a, a weekly update that dives into the most important topics regarding you know, the financial news of the, the games industry from earnings and IPOs and fundraises and, and things like that. Um, we, we dig into the details and tell you what matters. We're also spinning up earnings reports. And so we've already published a, a couple deep dives on Take Two's earnings and um, Embracer's earnings, we're gonna really ramp that up over the coming weeks and months. Um, and then, lastly, we we're, we're uh, announcing a partnership with Invest Game, um, who you've heard Anton be on the podcast many times. But we're gonna be working even closer to them. They've done a great job tracking all of the the games industry deal making um, over the past two three years and. We're going to start by just opening up um, some like data table access so people can see like everything, <laughs> like like all of the most recent M&As, all of the most recent corporate deals, the most active VCs, things like that. But I'm soon going to turn it into just opening up their entire database database into something that's filterable and accessible um, for all for all users. So really excited to to get this going. Um, and if you have uh, if you want to check it out, get a demo, you can go to our website and go to davic.co slash pro and learn more. So what would be the value that a subscriber would get out of 
all of these analysis? Is it is it to understand the underlying decision making in the industry, the strategies that companies are taking? Yeah, so I would say this particular vertical is probably going to be most interesting to investors who just want to stay mm-hmm. on top of like what all of the big companies, even small companies, are up to as they make decisions for their own money. But even too, like for other you know executives and you know competitive intelligence teams and things like that to better understand like in more detail what companies in the space are up to and why they're making the moves that they're doing and what the well, you know what the impact is on their numbers as they also kind of think through their own their own business um it can unlock some value for a lot of teams i hope awesome yeah sorry i said it wasn't as exciting as a party <laughs> that's okay <laughs> that was a tough act cool. to follow there yeah All right. Well, today we're going to be covering a lot of topics. So we'll be quickly looking at Unity and Playtika earnings. We're going to be diving into why Hogwarts Legacy was a success that it currently is and hopefully will be over the next years. And also looking into Crafton's new announced game that's targeting the India market. Uh, Yeah, first off, we have Jonathan. Yeah, so I think the first topic we're going to dive into is the surprise announcement by Activision, which is probably the smallest surprise ever expected in gaming, which is there's going to be a 2023 Call of Duty. Surprise, no surprise, right? (laughs) You know, the industry was a bit taken aback earlier in the year when it was announced that perhaps there would not be an annual release for the first time in 15 plus years. It's interesting. During my time as an executive there, that push pull of like trying to move into an ongoing game of service versus moving off annual releases was always a topic, but the annual revenue from a new 20 million plus units was always too difficult to, to pause. And it was interesting, right? We saw annual unit declines probably from 2013 on. We saw annual revenue increase, right? Because ARPU went up, you know, digital sales went up. But from a pure unit sold perspective, you saw a declining number of units, which would probably have put some interesting debate points on not doing an annual release. But then with this year, you saw the franchise reinvigorate to its highest initial sales ever. Uh, I, I was actually part of the team that was part of the previous record holders. I've got some tombstone trophies kicking around in my home office of like 650 in five days and 750 million in a week. And to sort of see them break a B right in like 10 days is very, very, very impressive. So, so again, I think we're back to the world that we were not surprised to have at all. And it's part of why Activision moved to a three studio system from a two or single studio system, right? It was uh, Infinity Ward, Sledgehammer, then Treyarch here, right? And we're, we're going back to that, that expected pattern, right? We're moving to a, uh, a Sledgehammer year in 2023. So my understanding of why they had changed their deci- sorry, they had changed their plan at the time was due to production difficulties and you know, how do you keep hitting that quality bar year over year so what do you believe has changed for them to actually now be able to say no we think that we can keep this up honestly from my perspective money money changes everything i mean the annual release is a challenge during my tenure they moved again from two studios to three studios which gave each studio or each lead studio three years to develop a game and you know as they struggled with some of the sub brands that got a little messier. You know, Treyarch would come in to help Sledgehammer or Infinity Ward because kind of at that moment in time, Treyarch was considered the studio that delivered the highest quality games. We're now living in a world where we're back to Infinity Ward as potentially the highest quality studio. 
Traditionally, the Sledgehammer titles have struggled relative to the other two lead studios. But frankly, I just think the thought of making a billion dollars in 10 days or you know $2 billion over the course of a year building new ecosystems, especially in the face of the merger, is something they could not back away from. And you know, the financial pressure of public markets is just too great. Thank you for that insight, Jonathan. All right, well, we'll roll all through. Aaron, our usual in-house earnings... Powerhouse? I'll take it. Um, so yeah, let's talk about Unity and Playtika. And uh, as I mentioned, Novic Pro, we're covering both these companies in more depth, their earnings there. But I want to talk about these two companies because I have some issues to to, to talk through here. Uh, you know, whereas Activision, you know, they're breaking records. Call of Duty's mega success has, you know, led to Activision having really strong results. These two companies, on the other hand, are seeing quite the opposite. So uh, I won't dig into all the details, but I just want to I just want to talk about what my problems are right now, and and then we can we can move on. And I'll I'll start with Unity. And to be clear, I think Unity is a very important company, but its results right now are covered in smoke and mirrors. And um, management is not being super transparent on you know a minute many metrics in the business and how we should be perceiving. The company, and so one, uh, we all know that the merger with Iron Source is complete, and that that merger, you know, messes with the performance data because they're basically taking two businesses and just shoving them together, and they're not breaking down at all um, how each individual piece of those businesses is performing, um, and some of that is to be expected. But the issue is that the combined company is performing pretty poorly, and so if you look at their what was their operate division they kind of renamed it to grow it's just all like their their ad side of the business monetization side um it only grew 12 percent year over year including the merger and so that's all we know like if, if if we were to break that out we would see that there actually probably is pretty extreme weakness in the core unity business and even iron source too um but management is just sort of glossing that over so i just wanted to call that out but furthermore we see now that last quarter um their group of like the 100k dollar plus customers, their largest customers, that actually went down for the first time, which is pretty. Uh, it's sort of you know it's a yellow flag for you know a company that's hallmarking themselves, marking themselves as a as a growth business. And again, with the merger with Iron Source, we can't we can't actually see how how these like individually how these um, like two parts are doing anymore. But that also is probably pretty bad, but we just don't have transparency. And then lastly, the thing that kind of riled me up here is stock-based compensation is off the charts. And so uh, I I won't get through the specific numbers, but essentially their stock-based comp for 2022 was 40% of the company's revenue, which is an enormous number. And for a company that they, they said, hey, we just hit Adjusted profitability for the first time ever this quarter, yay! And I'm just like, come on, like that. that if you're gonna have forty percent of your revenue go into stock-based comp, like that's such a misleading indicator of what your profitability really is. So I, I just had some issues with Unity. Again, it's an important company with important technology, but and they're going through some harder times, just as like the mobile games industry is, you know, going through a pretty big shift with the ATT recession. Um, that affects them. Um, but I just don't love how the company is portraying themselves right now to to not let people get a good view. Well, 
what do they gain from from taking that approach? Trust um, <laughs> from from the markets. Um, I mean, a lot of times I'll talk about this with Playtika too. Um, oftentimes, the the better a company is doing, the more they want to talk. But the the worse they're doing, the less they want to talk. And part of that is understandable. But I think just being like building like you get the shareholders that you deserve. And so if you build um, long term transparency and build up trust um, over time with shareholders, you'll get the, the shareholders who give you more of the benefit of the doubt. But if you're going to start playing playing mind games. Um, I mean, I, I, you'll just get less benefit of the doubt and you'll get more more questions wondering, like, what are you hiding? Um, so I, I think there's has, that. Has Unity ever had good results, though? They're one of those interesting companies that's been around a long time, but they, they've never really done anything impressive, financials-wise. Well, um, I don't know if I'd go that far. I think, you know, like when they first went public, they, they went public on a high <laughs> where their results were actually all pretty up and to the right. They were, you know, accelerating the number of new customers they were getting. Their um, average, like, revenue per customer was going up pretty successfully. Um, and, you know, they had, like, a good mix of organic and acquisitive growth. And you could still nitpick some things here and there. But, you know, it looked like, hey, this company is doing well, and it's on a trajectory to continue doing well for a very long time. And obviously, that trajectory has broken, um, partly because of the market, partly because of some self-inflicted wounds. But I do think it's gotten worse um, in terms of kind of the performance and how they portray themselves, um, at least. So so that's my thoughts on Unity. <laughs> but if you thought that was bad, wait for wait for Playtico, okay? Well, so, I, I still have a question. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Trailblaze into Playtico. I was wondering why... Why give out so much stock-based compensation? I'm not too aware with why that mechanism is used and what they're trying to accomplish. I was wondering if you could share a bit more on that. Yeah, so stock-based compensation is often used to re- reward employees, often you know, outsized more so for executives um, in terms of bonuses and such. Uh, part of this is you know incentives for people to join the company in the first place, and some of it is performance-based. Um, and the company, you know, they set aside however however many shares typically um, to um, to give in stock based comp. And part of the issue here that I think we have to be a little bit fair on with Unity is that much of the stock that they gave was at a much higher share price. And so a lot of the costing that we're seeing around like what has been their stock based comp for the year, it is at a much higher share price. Than it than it is now, and so being forty percent of revenue is not necessarily the same thing as being forty percent dilutive to to shareholders or anything like that. Um, but even so, I, I think it, it does show that the company overstepped in their like ambition and aggressiveness, both in terms of hiring, in terms of performance awards, etc. Especially at a time when uh, results have struggled and kind of seeing the mix of high extra comp paired with weaker performance is not a, a great mix, but it's all incentives to, to keep talent r- around. Got it. And what's your take on Unity's recent announcement of integrating MetaMask? And it seems like they're expanding their Web3 integrations into the engine. I mean, I think it's cool. Again, I think Unity does cool stuff and they, they're always building new features and new tools and acquiring new new assets to kind of build out their 
their creative and monetization presence, right? And I do think that um, through that, they still are able to to gain market share. It really is a two horse race, right? It's still between Unity and um, Unreal in a lot of ways, but I'm not necessarily like overweighting the importance of any one announcement, including that one. It makes sense for them to to have a presence if that's where the demand is, but we'll we'll see how needle moving it is. Probably probably not that much. Okay, so Platika's results were bad too, and I'm not going to get into all the numbers again. Um, other than to say, I I really don't know where Platika goes from here successfully. Um, and so my kind of my bottom line take with Platika is that they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, and I, let me just quickly break down why. So on one hand, they just capitulated to making new games, which was a pretty big announcement where they said, hey, given the conditions in the market, we're going to cease all activities for the foreseeable future on building new games, which for any games company to just basically throw their hands up and say we're not making new games, that, that basically is like a death toll to long-term organic growth. Um, not to say they can't grow certain games that they have, they can, but um, uh, basically caving into to not building new games is not, <laughs> it's not a good luck and it's not a great sign of being able to execute effectively because other teams are making new games and are doing okay with it despite the, the, you know, the tougher operating environment. So that's one. Um, on, the, on the other hand is you know, growing inorganically via M&A, right? which they're trying. We all know about their, their current attempt to acquire Rovio, for example. Um, but not only has Platika harmed their reputation by botching previous acquisitions, um, uh, but you know, with half of their market cap and net debt and having a much lower share price to use for, you know, using their shares as currency to strike deals. They just have a lot less flexibility to maneuver with, I think, less respect from the market as like a destination to get acquired um, than, than some people still realize. And so between not being able to really make new games and that hurting organic growth and not having great financial flexibility and having more of a tarnished reputation to hurt inorganic growth, that's a really, really hard place to be. And so sort of my bottom line take of all of that is like, I don't think Playtika should be a public company anymore. Um, and I don't know who would want to acquire them right now. They still are a multi-billion dollar business and there are only so many companies that can afford to to make those kinds of bets and those kinds of bets usually they want to do with more successful companies not ones that are you know mired in debt and have uh, you know portfolios and talent you know in decline that aren't building new things um so uh, you know whether whatever the mechanic is um i really do think they should go private in some way private equity makes the most sense to me um but they've already shrugged off at least one private equity offer, Joffrey Capital, I think last year, who showed some interest. Um, so I'm not really sure where the story goes from here, but it's not great. And I think it's the worst it's been in the time that they've been uh, a public company. So I wish them all the best, but it's it's sort of a big yikes to see right now. My understanding of the announcement is that they still want to continue investing in other companies 
that are developing new games. So they don't want to continue developing new games in-house, but they want to continue with those acquisitions and investments. Is that correct? Um, I think so, and all that could change. Um, but again, <laughs> that just means really limited organic growth, and it puts all of the emphasis on being able to strike deals through M&A or minority shareholders, which they've, they've had a tough go at and not the best results. So I have a hard time seeing this really turn anything around for them. So when I read it... Yeah, well, that's a success story for the market. That's, that, that's what Aaron's saying. I totally agree. I mean, it's crazy to sort of say you're not going to be developing any new games at all whilst doing these yeah. ham-fisted approaches to acquire. I, I agree. Do you think, Aaron, that they regret going IPO a few years ago? Because that was always quite a contentious thing when they did it. I mean, at this point, I think you have to say yes. But when I look back, I don't know if going public was necessarily the mistake, more so than what they did when they were public and how they they managed those assets and managed their internal game. Like, I think if they were more disciplined with their M&A and how they managed their balance sheet and maybe even, you know, just manage their own company internally. Like, I don't think it has to be as bad as it is now. I mean, it's still probably... It, they would be having a hard time just as like, you know, Zynga, when they were public, as the market changed, they were having a harder time. Glue, too, etc. Um, and just kind of given the state of mobile as a whole and looking at, you know, what comprises their portfolio across casino and casual. So I think it would, they would have a harder time, but I don't know if that means that they shouldn't have gone public completely. Yeah, I could be wrong as well. My takeaway from the information that was shared is that it seems like they've lost confidence of their internal capabilities of developing new games. Yeah, I'm curious. I don't know if this is true, but reading it, that's how it sounded to me. And that's extremely concerning. If you've lost that kind of trust. That's great for isn't it? When you say that out loud, it's uh, it's brutal. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I'm curious maybe to hear your take too on just like, even just from like a talent standpoint, like if you were inside of a big company like this that says you're going to stop making games, like surely that's not good for the culture, right? Is it confidence or is it cash flow, right? Are they just cash constrained for the development of gaming now, given the capital markets? Or do you think it's a lack of confidence in the, in the dev ability? Both. It, it's, <laughs> it, I think it's the scaling. I think that's what they're calling out, that in current market conditions, you can't take a new game and scale it to audiences in the way that you could before. So until people work out how to crack scale a mobile, they don't want anything to do with it. And a lot of that, like their unique thing that you have to give them a lot of credit for is that in terms of sort of the data science and understanding and min-maxing games, they were a few better than that. Um, they were brilliant through that for, throughout their lifetime. So if you've no longer got that edge, that is quite a worry. I think going back to your question, Aaron, yeah, I mean, I, I think if I was at a studio like that, what, why would you be there? You'd, it would It's kind of like, you know, major red flags going all over the place. Like what's the future? It must make it very uncertain, which again makes it kind of unusual that they've, they've made such announcements because to say that they're, they're pausing all activities altogether, you know, you'd have thought they'd say, you can just have one game in development, then at least you are developing games, right? It's, it's to completely pause them. And it really makes me wonder what is going on. I think they've been acting very unusually, uh, uh, sorry, very strangely of recent. And I'm just curious, it feels like there's a, a bigger thing at play here that we don't know what it is. Yeah, probably. And anyways, uh, I'll just close by saying, I don't have anything against play Tika or Unity. Like I, I, I'm rooting for them. I want them to both succeed. I don't like having to give 
you know, updates that are overly negative. Um, but you know, I still, I still say it as I see it. Right. And I just hope, you know, next time, um, there are more positive <laughs> updates or repercussions from, from some of this that we can talk through. Yeah. And you take a, a constructive approach. That's what we tried to do here in terms of the tone. My, I think my final take, and again, this is just reading from the outside is always different when you know all the details. I believe from what Anil you were saying that they Playtica was extremely good at min-maxing. You have that data, you know how to optimize based on that data. You're basically data-led in your decision making. And since we're post-IDFA, I don't you just don't have that granular data anymore. And we have to go back to decision making that has some gut based into it. You have some feel, you you just have to place many bets and create like a, a portfolio approach to how you're trying to scale games. And Matei, you know, we have an episode with Matei in, in our backlog where he was saying like there are ways for you to conquer post IDFA UA, but you have to change your strategy. And yeah, this is a story I've been hearing a lot in the industry that the way you think about scaling UA, it just has to change to have more of that broad creative thinking and not just being completely data-led. And so maybe that's why Playtica is being more affected because that yeah, they don't have that maybe decision-making process capabilities within the company i don't know but they have to go well, it's like um brand marketing is back that that's what yeah. it feels like and Playtica don't have too many brands and i think brands will be the next topic that we discuss is sort of like a, a big reason for the success thereof but i do think as a company like that that's probably what they have to focus on and how they go about doing that well that would explain why they want to buy rovio right because they have mm. some great brands over there yeah maybe that's a great segue then to go into hogwarts legacy that's with you again jonathan that's an excellent, excellent transition. Yeah. So I think the big news in gaming of the last week or so is right that Hogwarts Legacy did $850 million in two weeks, 12 million units. I believe that's a record for Warner Brothers games. It's certainly, you know, top tier for any AAA game in the world. And there's a lot of levels to this story, right? There's a level of the re-rise of Warner games, I think, given some of the... Uh, corporate distraction, let's call it, that took place at Warner Brothers. I think you saw Warner Games go dark for 2020 and 2021, and there was rumors that they were on the block for $4 billion. And then you saw them kind of reemerge in 2022 with an excellent uh, Star Wars title, and they also put out Multiverse, which did really well. And this seems to be the topper to kind of their reemergence as a top-tier game publisher. And it's also interesting because given those successes, you've seen the corporate tonality around owning a games company change at Warner Brothers, right? Zaz has gone from being a bit quiet over whether it would stay in the portfolio to really touting it in the last earnings call and touting the synergies, right? And Anil, as you pointed out, right, the power of brand, or as I would really say, the power of IP, especially in how Zaz is reframing all of Warner Brothers Discovery, right, around IP. So... You've got a streaming side to the IP story. You've got a gaming side to the IP story where I believe eight out of the top 10 IP last year were either, you know, sequels or based on, you know, outside IP from gaming. You've got The Last of Us, which is, you know, gaming IP, which is a top, you know, HBO title. IP is increasingly everything again in this world. And this is a perfect example. I also think there's another level to this conversation, which is... There was some belief that there was going to be a bit of a cancel culture backlash potentially to this title. 
given what's going on in the world and with the IP creator. And that didn't seem to materialize in terms of any kind of damage to sales or even really breakthrough to the larger cultural conversation. I think another level to this multivariate story is there was some concern when the game was delayed for nine months. That's rarely good news, right? The Warner said, yeah, like, we want to make this game as good as possible, which is always what everybody says when an IP gets pushed back. When I was at Activision, it was like culturally anthema to push IP. We really didn't do it. And there was a lot of hesitation when we would push like Destiny titles because Bungie had that power. And Warner seemed to have made the right decision, right? By giving the game the right nine months to bake and be as good as possible. I think last time I checked, Metacritic was an 86, which is or 85 or 86, which is very, very good. I think the last level is the power of consistent, uh, rational, non-emotive management. And what I mean by that is David Haddad is potentially one of the quieter leaders in this space. He's one of the uh, more calming personalities in this space. I worked for David at Activision and Pure Disclosure and found him to be an excellent manager and an excellent boss. But he was sort of an outlier from a tonality standpoint in a, in a culture led by Bobby Kotick, who obviously is hugely successful in his own way. And I think David's stability and rationality through change of ownership and all this stuff has shown to be a payout, right? Like David has kept a very calm hand and a very focused hand through chaos that would distract a lot of other leaders. And I think he's sitting in a very good place right now as a, as a gaming division head based on that leadership style. I saw you on mute at one point, and that's why I'm in silence just watching you. Oh, I think it's great to have such a great take from someone who's also been in the industry and knows what it's all about at that level. Um, I wanted to ask a few things, actually. Do you, do you think, sort of bizarrely, that the cancel culture worked in favor of it? I, I asked that because I remember the old school Grand Theft Autos when they would get into big trouble, you know, being taken to court because it was so controversial. And what happened is just every teenager, myself included, just wanted to play that game even more than they did already because everyone was talking about it. Um, if that was sort of accidentally implied. And the other thing I wanted to ask as a separate point is, you know, do you think this has redeemed it? Because you are right that there were so many rumors of, of Warner Brothers wanting to sell the division completely. And it's almost like they, they completely hated games. Disney, for some reason, is a little bit in this camp as well. And I've never sort of understood why these huge IP generators don't see what is a massive industry that they have easy access to that they don't exploit. I'll break those out separately. So your first point about do you think there was actually the cancel culture worked in the, in the game's favor? I don't believe so. And the comparison to Grand Theft Auto is interesting. Like we live in very different times politically than the height of Grand Theft Auto. And I think the interestingly, even the sort of backlash about ultraviolence versus the backlash about trans rights are very different things. So I do not think that there was a backlash to the backlash that helped the game. I don't think it was that politicized. However, I do think that this shows the limitations to at least this conversation around this IP owner and this IP owner's views. I don't think we can take it any broader than that. And I also think we're living in a bit of a changing landscape where potentially we hit peak outrage, right? And we're sort of dialing back peak outrage a little bit. But I don't think we can take this as an example of anything except for an example of this, right? I think the second piece is, yes, I think it's very much changed how you know Warner views this. And again, if you look at Zaz's new strategy for the overarching company, it's about going back to windowing. It's about going back to multi-platform exploitation of, of IP. And to a large degree, gaming is part of IP windowing. 
right? And and again, if you see within the same company, have they taken a gaming IP and had a huge success? You know, with The Last of Us, I think Zaz is really looking at the power of gaming IP and the power of multi-platform IP. And I think that this really stabilizes the future of Warner Games and really makes it accretive to the valuation. And at a time when they're facing the debt load that they're facing to make a billion dollars in two weeks, in essence, or a billion dollars, you know, within a week from now is certainly additive to their balance sheet. Awesome. Thank you. How long do you think it will be before I'm watching The Last of Us and in episode six, when a new character appears, the video game that I'm playing of the same name, the character appears digitally and I can interact with them. This just sort of feels like one of these sort of transmedia companies could pull something off like that, but never really seen anything even attempted in it. I think that's where the world is going to go. I think, unfortunately, the dev cycle of games and the dev cycles of shows are slightly different as long as it takes to make, you know, a show. Call of Duty is a three-year process, <laughs> right, per game. But I think you've painted the world that we should live in, right? You're basically talking about the gaming version of shoppable TV, right? Which is like we want to live in a world where these cross-IP you know, events can happen immediately. And I, I, you know, as a gaming fan and as a streaming fan, I look forward to that moment as much as you do. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> All I can say is finally. Um, I think um, when I when I was just starting Novik, when it was the master of the meta newsletter, one of the very first things I wrote about was around when it was first announced that uh, Warner Bros. was looking to sell its game division. And kind of my take was like, that seems short-sighted, um, so I hope I hope it doesn't work, <laughs> and that you know it just it just plays out a little bit longer. And I, I think this this game justifies that take a little bit um, in terms of it. What has been so clear about Warner Bros. is that probably you know, I mean, apart from Disney, they they might have like the strongest IP catalog in the world, um, which is pretty incredible. And if you can't turn that into a successful games business in some way, you're doing something wrong more so than the business being wrong. Um, and so it's really encouraging to see this kind of success. Um, I mean, part of it too, obviously is just like Harry Potter in and of itself is probably like one of one of, if not the most underutilized IPs in the world too. Right. Um, and so it really was a confluence of factors that led to this kind of hit that probably isn't, repeatable super often um but it shows that it's po it's possible and highly profitable and it's interesting jonathan to hear that uh you worked for um uh zaslov um who i've, I've no no i work for david i work for david hadden you know i've i've thought that zaslov he uh you know he's always come across as a super rational dude uh which it seems like um you know, David, who you're referring to is also that way. And so it seems like, you know, just like this, this company has more of a culture of across its, its, its entertainment strategies and properties of being able to recognize like, Hey, like from, from like a value creation standpoint, what really is working or not doubling down on what is cutting what's not. And like, you just like moving forward in a, in a way that, that seems to be like doubling down on the biggest and best IPs um, and um, kind of using that more as uh, profit engines for for the company as a whole across video, but also hopefully now gaming too. I'm I'm very curious to see what Warner Brothers does next with this. Um, obviously, like as like a 
mega IP owner. They they operate across a ton of different types of games with different partners and things like that. So it's you can't overly extrapolate the success of this one game to like the entire um, strategy and the library that they have. But I hope it encourages more of this kind of game going forward. I would expect, for example, we'll see a sequel at some point of this game. And I don't think there's been any DLCs announced either, but it seems inevitable that um, they they throw some in. Like, for example, I know we talked about a previous episode, like, how could they not have Quidditch, right? Like, Quidditch, uh, yes. DLC number one, you know, please, right? Um, but, but in general, yeah, I'm just curious how this could change how they view the overall strategy just like within the games division as a whole, which seems to... It has different parts, but I don't know how focused it is on like a unified strategy. I just can't tell. But I'm curious if anyone has thoughts on like how this success will like actually change like the games division internally. Well, I, I'd like to. I'd sort of like to make two points about that. So the first point is, you know, you talked about IPs and synergies, and without hijacking this gaming podcast into a streaming podcast, you talk about potentially Warner having one of the strongest portfolios of IP along with Disney, right? One of the reasons I've been a bit of a Netflix bear is Netflix, for all the money they've spent on IP creation, has very few AAA IP. And, you know, I, I saw an Ankler analysis that even if you, if you transform their spend to Rotten Tomato scores, they've actually been the least efficient buyer of Rotten Tomato rating points of any studio, right? Like they've had the lowest rated shows in exchange for the dollars spent, whereas I believe HBO had the highest ratio, right, of, you know, of, HBO, of like Rotten Tomato rankings per, per dollar spent. And so when you're sitting on powerful IP, you can exploit it across a lot of platforms, right? Mm. And I think the second piece of that is Zaz is now looking at both sides of how this can benefit his company, right? He's sitting on his top-rated TV show being based on a gaming IP, and he's sitting on the top-rated game being based on one of the other IP that they own, right? So hopefully you're going to see exploitation. I mean, you know, the siloization of how this stuff gets made inside mega corporations is the challenge, Right. Um, but uh, but I think Zaz is probably looking at a, at a completely different thing. And, and by the way, he's he's always looked at synergies. You know, I clarified that I hadn't worked for Zaz. I, I worked for David. I actually sold a company that I worked for to Zaz. Uh, I sold Motor Trend to Zaz because he had an automotive linear television network and we built an automotive streaming company. And again, he's looking for synergies. Right. And he's a big believer in, in, in synergies. And so while that is an overused corporate word, I think, it, you know, there, there has been a lot of money generated for that company based on gaming to streaming and streaming to gaming synergies right now. I think one point that I want to bring into this take is about execution. And I think that's why we're able to see these magical IPs come to life exactly how we have them in our imagination and what it makes them, makes us feel. Because I think maybe 15 years ago, the people that were executing on bringing these IPs to TV or into a game, they were probably not people that lived and breathed this IP. They don't know, like, what's this whimsical feeling? What feeling should using my wand and making this spell make me feel? And I think that now, and we're also seeing that, for example, with the new directors are bringing Marvel, the new Marvel um, series to, to Disney. It's just people that have grown up playing these IPs and they know exactly what they want to make the audience feel. And I think that's why 
The Last of Us is just being so impactful. And I think that's why Hogwarts Legacy is being so impactful. You play it and it makes you feel like you're part of that world. And being able to execute on that, I think that's just a new talent that now we have available in the industry to create these experiences. That's a think, huge yeah. point. We live in a world where the consumer doesn't have time for anything but greatness, right? We live in the greatest content glut of our lifetimes, which means anything that isn't excellent is unlikely to succeed because we only have time for excellence. Only excellence cuts through. I think more and more there's also the attention, the competition for attention between gaming and, for example, social media and TV. It's not only the greatness of the content within a certain aspect of what you consume your time on. It's just everything is fighting for your attention nowadays. It's an attention-based culture. And so, yeah, you, you have to be great not only within your, your own segment of the market, but just generally across everything that wants consumers to spend their time on. Absolutely. Great point. Does the game choice itself also have a, a, play, a part to play here? Because this is like the first like properly open world game. It's not like a linear story. Like I, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Maria, where you said it is like the fantasy of being in the Harry Potter universe. That's what this game absolutely executes on, whereas other titles in the past didn't. I think another game that I can think of in a sort of similar way was Pokemon Go, in the sense that that was a game that made you feel like you were Ash, a Pokemon master, going around the world capturing stuff. And that's why it absolutely zinged it on mobile, whereas previous mobile titles didn't. So coming back to kind of Aaron's question, which was like, what could they take for the slate going forward? Perhaps that's what they need to do. They need to be more daring and they need to actually think about, rather than playing it safe, what is like the user expectation or people who love this IP, what do they want from the game? So when we see a open world Mortal Kombat game in two years' time, please remember this podcast or, or don't when the idea is terrible and it sinks about Trace. <laughs> no, that's another excellent point. And it's interesting because licensed games traditionally have played it safe. For a couple of reasons. A, because of the license feedback to the IP owner, literally the PL doesn't bear the same development dollars, right? As like original IP. But secondly, because of the stakeholders, and often the stakeholders who have some creative approval are not gaming people, licensed IP has rarely ranked at the top of the, the Metacritic's charts, right? So, so you raise another awesome point, right? Which is like, hey, it's got to be great and take some risks and, and you know, licensed property has been about de-risking, right? And, and potentially you're talking about the payoff of risking. Yeah. I also asked the question too, just because it, it is an outlier for Warner Brothers games um, in terms of like it's blockbuster, um, you know, success. Um, and if you look, you know, at some previous games like uh, Gotham Knights, like that, that game got middling reviews and sort of was a whiff and it kind of leaves some people questioning the new suicide squad game that that's coming out. Multiverses had a really big start, but I think has largely flamed out um, in its ability to engage players over time. And there, there are other successes and such too through, throughout the portfolio. Um, but it, it seems like, you know, just from the execution point, they really knocked it out of the park with this Harry Potter game, even compared to just like other internal games of late too. So I'm just wondering how they take the lessons from this to maybe refocus elsewhere um, in the portfolio too. And I'm just not, I'm not sure about the inner workings of, of the company or I know a lot of this, it still takes place in different studios, different partners, things like that. But 
Um, uh, yeah, I'm just wondering how much we should be extrapolating from the success of this one game um, to like, you know, Warner Brothers did it, but is it repeatable um, across franchises more successfully is sort of where my head is going. And I, I don't know. I hope so. But I, I have a feeling they'll have to, um, you know, continue iterating and improving in a bunch of different different ways to really pull that off. That's um, fair, but they've had a much stronger last 12 months than the 24 prior, I would say. I'm, I'm with you that we need another example before making a solid conclusion from this because there was a drought of good games with the Harry Potter IP. And so how and similar to Pokemon Go, how much of that success it was talked about in the Gamecraft podcast, and I thought that was really interesting. How mm-hmm. much of the success can you um, how do you call it in I was missing the word in English, uh, relates to the fact that there was no IP game content to interact with. So I'll wait to see them make it again, and then I'll probably have a conclusion. All right, well, I think this is a really good time then to move into our last deep dive, which is. Crafton, I know. Yeah, well, speaking of potentially taking a risk or doing something outside the norm, let's talk a little bit about Crafton. So if you're not aware, Crafton are a a Korean company. They're most famous for uh, developing and releasing Player Unknowns Battlegrounds, PUBG, which is a huge game in the industry over the last sort of five years. However, what we're talking about here is that they are about to develop a new game, or they've already developed, they're about to release a new game in India, um, but it's not a Battle Royale game. So... For some context, they had a game called Battlegrounds uh, Mobile India, which was out for a short period in India and it was absolutely huge, went straight to the charts and absolutely smashed it. But it was banned, like several other Chinese games, um, over security issues. Uh, I've got my kind of invisible air commas here to kind of put around that. The sort of idea that I think is because so many people were playing these games, they had absolutely huge DAU and MAU, that they were collecting data of players and the Indian government weren't exactly happy about this. There are, of course, some G geopolitical situations going on here so one thing led to another and those games are no longer available in those territories however they have got some subsidiaries in the country they have bought some studios and they're developing a new game called Road to Valor now Road to Valor is actually going to be a, a kind of strategy type game it's more in the lines of Age of Empires that's what they're kind of saying and to kind of give give the official spiel the upcoming Road to Valor Empires will be different from Crafton's well-known Battle Royale system games Road to Valor is a PvP strategy game where players can outplay their opponents by creating armies from different factions. The game may look similar to, similar to popular Age of Empires franchise, but here players can choose mythical characters and beings. Some characters players can choose from include Athena, Odin, Caesar, and more. Kind of interesting. So this has been developed uh, by a fully owned subsidiary called Dreammotion. It's going to be released in two weeks' time. And I guess what we want to kind of frame the topics around is why are they choosing to do this? Is this a territory that they should still be pushing hard on compared to other things that they might want to do? And talking a little bit about overall slate. And I think we kind of have covered this in previous episodes, but just to kind of give more of a reminder, their uh, earnings forecast in Q4 was pretty good. Operating profit was up 15.5%. Their overall sales were down very slightly, 1.7%. But in Q4 specifically, their sales were up 6.8% year on year. But I think really impressively was that their operating profit was up 178.8%. So they've either been doing some cost-cutting measures or more efficiencies, but that is extremely impressive for a company. So I have a few thoughts myself. I thought I'd pass it over to the panel. What do you think about Crafton trying a uh, RTS in India? I'll take the first first shot. (laughs) We've been talking about 
how to create a game that can succeed in this new market, the greatness, the attention seeking of all of these different products. And gaming, especially mobile gaming, uh, relies on localization. So localizing to different languages. And then we start seeing even more hyper localization, for example, with Garena Free Fire, where you have local teams that understand the culture in and out. They know what IPs or will be good IP crossovers and what they should be celebrating in game, for example, in seasonality. And I'm very interested to see how what this will result for Crafton, because this is hyper, hyper localized game development. A local team building a game for the, you know, the population of India. And they also talked about translating the game in multiple dialects, so not only like the main the main language, because India has so many languages. So it is a, a game developer that's building a whole new game for the market that they live in and know in and out. And so I, yeah, I'm extremely curious to see if this hyper-localization, is that a strategy that we can see more companies pursue? Does, does the target demographic surprise you a little bit, though? Just because RTS games tend to appeal to people who are a bit older, more sort of, I would say, 28 plus, a lot of people, 30s and 40s. Whereas India, they have a very young average age. So, you know, from the kind of commercial reasons as to why a games developer might want to target India in the first place, this year it's going to overtake China in terms of overall population mm-hmm. in the country, which is, you know, crazy. But even more interesting is the fact that the average age in the country is pretty low. Most of the working ages between 20 and 30 so if you kind of put that down that is one reason why these multiplayer pvp combat games have done so well there right it's like if you could pick a dream demographic it's what you want you want kind of like angsty 20 somethings have got a lot of money in their pocket and a lot of anger in the world and they want to take it out on other people that's what you've got there so i i do find it a bit interesting that they've gone for this one specifically i can't really think of too many examples off the top of my head of rts games doing well there I do know that, funnily enough, they mentioned Age of Empires 2 in the article. I do know they have a sort of semi-scene going on there. Um, I'll actually say to you something, this is pretty crazy, but did you know that one of the most popular games on Facebook gaming is actually Age of Empires 1? And it's because there's a huge Vietnamese community and they had like a stream and had like 500,000 people watching um, the Age of Empires 1 World Championships 25 years after it launched. Crazy stuff. But that's just a thought of myself. But what the rest of the panel think? Well, I'm just curious, like, what do you think about the game itself? Like, do we know much about it yet? Um, I believe the game has uh, had some kind of pre-release already in China, so it's not, like, completely new. But to be honest with you, it, it, they're only, you know, you can sign up to get some perks. It's not out for a few weeks, so we won't know yeah. until you can play it. It is for mobile, though, so it's not, like, a straight-out PC game. It has been developed from the ground up for mobile. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm just curious. I mean, it's it's so different from Battle Royale. Like, I don't even know how much we can really compare the two. Battle Royale, those games, you know, they came out at the perfect time and they just caught lightning. And, um, you know, the companies, you know, they caught lightning and for the most part, you know, were able to like really capture it and then, you know, build momentum with it. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, the, the circumstances in, in India obviously made that extra hard for a company like Krafton. Um, uh, so I don't know how much we can really compare, you, you know, like this new attempt in the region to the old attempts. So it almost feels just like um, kind of wiping the slate clean and coming back with, you know, new teams, new strategies. Um, but if they have the talent there, um, I guess it could make sense to lean into it and take shots. I mean, we know that 
Crafton isn't shy about taking shots in general. Mm-hmm. They're trying to move past PUBG like all around the world. And, you know, maybe sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Like they also launched the Callisto protocol uh, this past year, which was like a big, it was a big attempt to build a new IP. Um, and, you know, I think it was probably a well-made game, but I, I think I read that it had like a 160 million development budget uh, or, or something like really high for the kind of, you know, horror action game um, that it was. And so, I mean, by, I'm, by the I, way, th- th- this game is Clash Royale. I've just looked at it. It's it's just like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that maybe that makes more more sense yeah. then. But in general, I mean, I think I like that Crafton is taking shots. I don't know how much it's really been working fully for them to like really build the next big IPs to to kind of shape their future beyond PUBG or really build out that more like tentacles of that ecosystem. I don't know how like how focused their strategy really is, but um, I mean, I like they're taking shots both like internally, but also like externally. I, I read that like one of their big objectives for 2023 is to just like do even more um, and level up their like external investments into small studios, which I imagine, you know, they're doing for a reason. Part of it is just to, they have cash, they got to do something with it. But part of it too is probably they're looking for like MA targets over time and getting their their foot in the door can give them an advantage and use that as a growth opportunity. Those thoughts don't really have yeah. much to do with this new game, but I think that this game kind of put into that context of them, they're just taking shots. Um, I think it, it's fine. It makes sense. I was going to say that something that's quite interesting about their investment strategy, from what I know, is that they tend to want to back teams that have got like a super passionate idea and really want to execute on it rather than sort of being, let's say, more commercial focused teams that have spotted an opportunity in a market that think they could do it. They'd rather back kind of people who, you know, this is their game that they've been working on five years, some moderate success, but they really want to take it to the next level. They would back that type of game. And I believe that's because. That's how they, well, that, that is the PUBG story, right? They found this super passionate Irish guy that was based out in Brazil who was absolutely obsessed with making this sort of, you know, uh, survival game. They backed him with it. And, you know, I remember there's this famous quote where they said, um, PUBG redefined what we thought a successful game actually looked like. We had a previous RPG title that we considered successful. And now when we look at the revenues comparatively, we were like, what are we even talking about? This <laughs> this barely pays for like the cleaning bills of the company. In terms of the RTS, I think you have a really good point on the ne- demographic. So I, I believe that Crafton has not given up trying to distribute BGMI in India again. So I don't believe that they would want to do a local competitor for their most popular and high performance game. I believe that even though the young population of India is really growing in size and it could become a mass market, I don't know what the purchasing power is when compared to targeting older demographics that maybe will have the funds to put towards gaming. And then the third, um, we look at Crafton and they really inspire the creation of grassroots esports and communities and people creating their own local competitions. And then another example of games being able to do that is RTS. Age of Empires still has a really strong mini esports community, including Age of Empires 2 and other RTS games. So I think from the, those perspectives, I can understand why they go down this route. But the passion is super interesting. I think the main takeaway of today's episode is that 
passion, connecting with an IP. It is important to be data informed, but more and more in this new market, finding a team that is passionate and feels excited on what they're working on is a great indicator. Do you think, Anil, that this is a like a one-off for them, like approaching the Indian market in a new way? Or is this like kind of like the beginning of like a fuller fledged like attack <laughs> to to just take more shots, create more things for India first? Honestly, I think they want to be the number one studio in India in terms of revenues. I think if you look at it, PUBG was huge, but the thing that really elevated it to another level was the mobile release in China. Prior to that, it was popular, but Fortnite kind of stole its lunch money and they were quite upset with it because you know they could develop faster with a better engine. They didn't have to repair all their tech and so on and so forth. But once Tencent got involved and released it there, I believe still to this day that PUBG Mobile has the highest DAU of any game in the world, which is, that means more people play PUBG than they play Candy Crush, which is pretty insane saying if you think about it right so i think if you do the math and you know chinese government being quite anti-game i know they've started to open things up a little bit but that shows you that it's not the sort of secure palace that you thought it might be anything could go wrong at any time there then what's the next place to go to go to the next area where you can conquer it get the player base get that customer base for years and years and years and then monetize on it. And perhaps whilst right now you may not be making too much revenues in the next five to 10 years, as was proven in China, that will turn into something pretty big. Um, I actually want to call uh, back to one of the other podcasts this week with Manish from IndieGG. And I think, you know, some he even said in his podcast that he felt like living in India was an unfair advantage because, um, you know, being there, he was right on the doorstep of millions, hundreds of millions of gamers that are the right age that are going to be redefining the world going forward and i think that's really where their strategy is because what i was going to ask if you think about it with all of their resources why choose this country specifically they could go to the west they could go to the usa they could go to europe if they wanted to they've never really tried it too hard whereas um actually talking about localization i don't know if you guys have ever seen the advert for battlegrounds mobile india but it's absolutely hilarious it's like a bollywood movie crossed with call of duty with the production values to match and it looks amazing <laughs> like you know very localized and works well and i think it's no surprise that it was cool to people who lived there i think it has a potential that if you do develop that localized experience that it still connects with other markets i don't know if you know the movie rrr on netflix that that's one of my favorite action movies in the entire year and it's like a combination of you know bollywood with I don't know, explosions and just this craziness. It's so so much fun. So this is a bit tangential, and we can cut this out if no one knows anything. But I was going through their um er, their like their earnings presentation and they're they're highlighting like a new business that they're spinning up, an open world UGC game platform. Does anybody do you know anything about that, Anil, or anyone else? Is that not the blockchain thing? I think it might be. Uh, C2E, I'm pretty I think sure that's it great is to earn. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you've just called it what it is there, but I think that's another big bet that they're taking as well. Yeah, and they're also investing in creating hyper-realistic AI to populate these worlds. They're taking multiple bets. So they're also opening up studio, I believe, um, a couple more studios that are doing the just new games because they have the new game based on Brandon Sanderson's. Sorry, not based on. He's writing it. It's like a sci-fi game. And then they did the Callisto Protocol. So they're taking multiple bets. Yeah, I, I I haven't really made up my mind 
on all of these bets. I mean, clearly the um, the RTS game in India is one of many, and it's super interesting and probably signals even just like more of what they're thinking bigger picture. But there are so many of these like rabbit holes with Krafton, like this platform, um, what they're doing in console PC versus mobile, how they're approaching investments and M and A. Um, I yeah, I just wonder like where their big successes will come from because kind of the way their approach that they're taking, it's probably like not all of these things are going to succeed. It's not like the company isn't putting their full focus behind any one thing. And I'm just curious, the craft sound of five years <laughs> will be from now will be really interesting to see what all of these different pieces actually amount to and you know what it's do, do not think it's a, markets yeah mm-hmm. do you not think it's a situation a bit similar to like king with candy crush though where you've got such a ridiculous success realistically you're never going to beat it so it's like why even try to beat it just try interesting things because thinking back with king right now sure they've got bought by um activision and now again by microsoft but they've never made a game that i think's done even five percent of what candy crush did unless you include candy crush two and three which i don't because you know that's just the same thing so maybe it is just the case of that like, i actually think if, if, if i was in that situation you're better off taking wilder more crazy shots because it's kind of improving if they were just to make like another kind of battle royale game but not really it's probably not going to do as well as the original yeah i think that's true i don't think they necessarily need to try to top PUBG, but you know they still have to be mindful about like their returns on you know their invested capital and making sure that what they're investing in still still works. Um, and the the approach they're taking is just going to be more volatile, right? Like some things that'll have negative returns, some things might be really high and we don't know. And those those bets will make up for the rest. It's just kind of hard to tell, at least for me <laughs> at this point of how all of that is going to to play out. Okay, well, I think we'll wrap up today's episode here then. It's a lot of deep dives. This is quite interesting conversations. And yeah, Jonathan, Anil, Aaron, thank you so much for joining. We'll be here again next week. And yeah, thank you, everyone. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.